quite some time ago, I listened to a Dharma talk by Pema Chodron that probably some of you know or might have read some books of hers, an American woman who ordained in the Tibetan tradition. She was uh, also a disciple of Trungpa Rinpoche. And in one of her talks that I listened to, she mentions that spiritual practice is about learning to relax with the panic. And somehow I thought that was quite a proper description or at least one way of looking at it. The panic we might experience sometimes when realizing more and more on a very personal, very immediate level that our life, our inner, our outer experiences are really ungraspable, fleeting, uncontrollable, transparent. And that in this way, there's no once and for all final solution, be it for our character, our relationship, our work, our meditation, because it's always constantly changing and learning to relax with this fact. Of course, sometimes it's easier than we thought. We also uh, experience that to our surprise. Sometimes it's just been a habit of our mind, we forgot. And sometimes it's very challenging, very difficult. Stephen Batchelor, another Dharma teacher who also teaches here in our center together with Martin, his partner, he quite often uses the word care when he speaks about mindfulness or awareness as one of the very essential qualities in our practice. Care, that means being interested to turn towards, to participate, to attend to. Care is really the opposite of indifference of turning away, of being disinterested, disconnected. So we learn to care, to care for ourselves, for our body, for our mind, for our heart. We care for others, care for the world. It's about letting go of the suffering that we create for ourselves and for others. And I feel that sometimes we are so busy in doing the practice right, correct, that we forget this obvious fact that it's really about learning to let go of suffering. So there's a, a sense story that uh, quite uh, well illustrates that. An older monk came to see a Zen master and said, In my life so far I've visited many spiritual teachers 
and given up more and more pleasures in order to conquer my desire. I fasted for a long time, lived the celibate life for years, and mortified the flesh. I've done everything that I've been asked for and truly suffered, but I wasn't granted to be enlightened. I've given up everything, all greed, all joy, all striving. What else should I do? And the Master replied, give up suffering. I think we forget sometimes in doing our job well, our practice well. But in order to understand how we get entangled in our painful habits, we need to radically turn towards ourselves, towards life in all its different manifestations. And this is a very intimate matter. There's no hiding place. And as we all know, this can be quite hard at times. Because on our path we encounter our hatred, our self-condemning, the pride, the conceit, the envy. But also our lack of self-esteem, our fears, our hopes. And our holding on tightly to our opinions and ideas. But of course we also meet our kindness, our humor, our lightness of heart, our generosity and our wisdom. And often we have negative thoughts about ourselves, but we also become aware that there is quite a big portion of openness and compassion and joy within ourselves. So what makes it possible for us to relax within the uncertainties of life and help us, helps us to soften our fears, our harshness, our stubbornness and our feelings of isolation? I think it's really exactly this care, this... This doesn't work. Oh, it does. <laughs> it's the care, the kindness, and the compassion. They unmask the illusion of those seemingly barriers between me and you, between us and them, and between different parts, even within our own psyche, within our own heart and mind. So it's really not about struggling in our practice in order to win the battle and then becoming a kinder and wiser human being. Rather, it's about learning to connect with the kindness, the compassion, the joy and the equanimity and wisdom that we already have in this very moment. And this love and this compassion is strengthened and stabilized through wisdom and equanimity. They are their foundation. It's equanimity that gives support to love and compassion so that they can grow and deepen 
and finally overcome all barriers and include all beings. And as you all know, in a retreat we get well acquainted with all aspects of ourself. In a very immediate, unfiltered way, we feel all our wishes and hopes, our concerns, our likes, our dislikes. And similar to our daily life, we might sometimes ask ourselves, how can I get rid of this pain, of the failure, of the loss, of the blame? And sometimes we treat that which shouldn't be, which can't be, like atomic waste even. Where can I bury it? Or is there some place where I can export it? So over and over it's this caring, interested and kind awareness and turning towards our emotions and thoughts and evaluations and conclusions that reveals us that they are ultimately a myth. Both thoughts, the thought I'm a loser as well as the thought I'm a winner, the thought I failed and the thought I succeeded are really built on sand on a very unstable ground. And whether we hold on to success or identify with a fiasco, in both cases we suffer because it will change. And that's what we get to know more and more through our practice. So we need kindness and compassion for ourselves. We need a kind heart and an open mind that is willing to learn from everything. And this is by Rumi in one of his poems where he speaks about this inclusion of all aspects of life that we need. If God said, Rumi, Pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms. There would be not one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not any act I would not bow to. So the nature of all our experiences, as we've heard many, many times over these days, the desired and the dreaded is fleeting, is transparent, is ungraspable. But seeing them with our prejudices and conclusions, they over and over appear as quite hard, solid, and sometimes as eternally true. And I just found this example, which I find quite amusing, just illustrating one way how we can sometimes hold tightly to our ideas. A man 
speaks to another man passing by on the street. Hübner, that's the, obviously the uh, name of that man, Hübner, what's the matter with you? You used to be small, now you're tall. You used to be big, now you're slim. You used to be bald-headed, now you have long hair. You used to... I'm not at all called Hübner, the passerby interrupts him. What? You're also not even called Hübner anymore? So it takes great patience and forgiveness with ourselves, since the habit of constantly reacting, evaluating, putting into boxes ourselves, others, is very deeply ingrained. And this is another poem, again, by Kabir, another mystic from the Islamic tradition and it's called It Stops Working. Look what happens to the scale. The scale is divage. Look what happens to the scale when love holds it. It stops working. So being busy pushing away and holding on, we can't see in those moments the transparent nature of all these experiences. And in order to see, we need to stay, stay present outwardly, but of course staying present inwardly, staying connected, staying when we refuse to open our fist staying when we are deeply determined not to like that person. And through our willingness to stay with this full catastrophe of life, which it really is at certain times, of course not always, without justification, without condemnation, we are able to see this fleeting nature of even a tight fist, And it's through our willingness to stay, really, that this quality of equanimity grows grows within ourself. And equanimity doesn't mean indifference. Because in moments of indifference, and we, of course, also experience them, our mind is a little bit like frozen. It's numb. It's disconnected. There's fear or aversion against connection to whatever the experience might be. But in moments when there is equanimity, our mind is pliable, it's connected, it's fearless. So it's really equanimity which is a strong backbone, the support for an open, for a soft and sensitive heart. Without this strength, we we couldn't bear this vulnerability. They both go together and they have to go together. 
the openness, the kindness, the softness and the equanimity. And in a way, perhaps metta, this kindness, is like the temperature of equanimity. It's, it's warmth. And equanimity is like the open blue sky and perhaps metta like the warmth of a mild summer evening. Franz von Sales, he was uh, a bishop of the 16th, 17th century, also a, a mystic and founder of an order. He uh, speaks, I think, quite eloquently about this, these two qualities going together of equanimity and, and the mildness of the heart. He says... In winter, equanimity is fire, and in summer, dew, tau. It knows to live with abundance and to bear poverty. It benefits both from honor and from blame, accepts joy and sorrow with an almost even heart, and fills us with an admirable mildness. It fills us with an admirable mildness. I think this is this warmth, you know, that's also part in this quality of equanimity. So this kindness means making friends with ourselves and with other human beings. It means appreciation for parts within ourselves that we like, for people, beings that we love, but it's also kindness for those parts within ourselves that we don't like, that are ugly, that we perhaps even feel ashamed of. It's Oscar Wilde who once wrote, it is not the perfect, it is the imperfect that is in need of our love. Or, in other words, by St. Francis of Assisi, famous Christian uh, saint, it was easy to love God in all that was beautiful. The lessons of deeper knowledge, though, instructed me to embrace God in all things. So we learn in our practice to even hold aversion with kindness not adding more pain to it, through resisting it, to avoiding it. Because if we fight aversion with aggression, it becomes more solid and hard like granite. And if we meet it with an atmosphere of tolerance, we experience its transparency. And what seemed to be poison at first becomes our medicine. 
And the trick really is, or the secret is, this mildness, this gentleness of the heart. Pema Chodron, again, when listening to her talk, she uses a classical picture to describe this kindness or this metta. And it, she compared it with a bird mother. Bird mother who protects and feeds her baby birds that they may, may get strong and eventually get independent and be able to fly away from her. And Pema Children says or comments, Kindness does not mean to stay in your nest and having someone feeding you worms for the rest of your life. So kindness makes us more courageous, more confident, more flexible also. And in those moments in which we are not so much entangled in our prejudices and our reactions in which we don't perceive ourselves so much as the center of the universe, in those moments we naturally react with compassion when confronted with suffering, with that which is difficult to bear. And this quality of compassion, of karuna, as it's called in Pali, has to do with our relationship to pain. It is that aspect of metta or of kindness when life gets difficult. It is the love that doesn't close down in the face of suffering. The compassion is courage to stay present with the pain, to relax and not to go into a battle with it. And of course, when we are confronted with suffering, and it certainly also has to do with the intensity that we are confronted with, we sometimes also find ourselves reacting with the so-called uh, opposite of uh, compassion, which is cruelty, really, striking against the suffering, not wanting to have it. Or we go into so-called near enemy, that... Uh, energy, that reaction in the mind that sometimes hide as if it would be compassion because it, it uh, comes along looking a little bit like compassion and that is traditionally called uh, pity, mit light, perhaps instead of mit gefühl, mit light, this thing of oh poor me or poor you. Sometimes it also manifests in terms of this compulsion that we might have to, to help. You know, the moment somebody experiences something a little bit difficult or maybe is crying or, you know, we can't stand it. 
You know, we can't stay there for even a moment. We immediately have to jump in and see whether there's something we can do about it. It's really where we take our self-worth out of how much we can help someone. In this moment, we are really important. We are the center, not the other person. We are the helper. And I think to the degree that we can be compassionate to our own suffering, to that degree we also have the capacity to be with the suffering of another person. So the work we do here, inwardly, quietly, which sometimes seems, uh, or the question might come up, how much does it relate to the suffering uh, in my family, in society, in the world, really is very much related to how we react with the suffering outside. This is by Rabia of Basra. She was an Islamic mystic. And she says, can true humility and compassion exist in our words and eyes unless we know we too are capable of any act? So how can we train our heart muscle? Often when things fall apart, when it hurts, we blame ourselves. We blame others, we hate, we get bitter, we poison ourselves. And how can we let compassion grow in those moments instead? And again, I think the, the practice in one way, it's quite challenging, but it's also very easy at the same time. Again, we let go of the story of the thoughts that we get entangled in, be it the pain, the story about the pain in the body, or about the emotion of loneliness, of sadness. And what remains is really, it's still, it's still perhaps unpleasant, it's still painful. Loneliness might still be here, or sadness, or the pain in the body. But through our willingness and being able to stay in direct experience, there's really a, a softness that happens in the mind. A softness that can melt away this toughness or this bitterness. Pema Chodron, she used a very actually a very strong expression when she talked about uh, this ability that of course we sometimes have and sometimes we haven't, that's just part of the practice. She uses the, the words of we let us break our heart. And I know it's a very strong expression usually associated with uh, quite negative um, 
meaning. But I think what she really means, it's at these moments we, we allow ourselves to have the courage to, to feel and, and have that which we dread so much, that we've always been running away from. And something really happens in those moments. It's, it's a, a little bit like ma- magic somehow. Now we get more receptive, something softens. And of course it might still hurt, might still be painful. Perhaps it's a little bit like in homeopathy. Before it gets better, it gets worse. Ajahn Chah, the great uh, monk from the Thai forest tradition, he said, there is suffering that leads to more suffering and there is suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And I think it very much has to do with, with exactly that moments. Sometimes we learn to stay with our suffering, not to be very masochistic or increase our suffering, but because we know this is really the path to the end of it. And through this willingness to stay connected, to experience loneliness or hatred or the wanting mind fully, really being in contact with its energy without any interpretation, what also happens, we experience the loneliness or the hatred of all beings somehow. There is something very universal in this moment. And it's in these moments that we get a sense of connection instead of isolation, what we very habitually also uh, often experience when it's difficult. So there is almost a gift that we receive through that willingness, a kind of a sweetness, although it might be painful or difficult to be there. And sometimes we don't even recognize in that very moment that we actually learn through our willingness to stay present because everything we, we can perceive or we are aware of is that it's painful, that it's unpleasant. And for that, there's quite a, a, I found an interesting story, again, that Pema Chodron mentioned in her talk. One of her long-time students went to play billiards in Los Angeles, which what he did many times before. And he told her that he put his leather jacket over a chair and when he looked up, a minute later, his jacket was gone. And looking around, he saw three big, very strong guys maliciously long, laughing at him and insulting him. And he said that normally in that situation, he would have lost his temper, really. 
But in that moment, very spontaneously and to his total surprise, he recalled all the human beings in the world who were put down as he was in this very moment and laughed at and he could empathize with them. And instead of anger, there was compassion. So how can we train our heart muscle? Often when things fall apart, when it hurts, we blame ourselves. We blame others, we hate, we get bitter, we poison ourselves. And how can we let compassion grow in those moments instead? And again, I think the, the practice in one way, it's quite challenging, but it's also very easy at the same time. Again, we let go of the story of the thoughts that we get entangled in, be it the pain, the story about the pain in the body, or about the emotion of loneliness, of sadness. And what remains is really, it's still, it's still perhaps unpleasant, it's still painful. Loneliness might still be here, or sadness, or the pain in the body. But through our willingness and being able to staying in direct experience, there's really a, a softness that happens in the mind. A softness that can melt away this toughness or this bitterness. Pema Chodron, she used a very actually a very strong expression when she talked about uh, this ability that of course we sometimes have and sometimes we haven't, that's just part of the practice. She uses the, the words of we let us break our heart. And I know it's a very strong expression usually associated with uh, quite negative um, meaning. But I think what she really means, it's at these moments we, we allow ourselves to have the courage to, to feel and, and have that which we dread so much, that we've always been running away from. And something really happens in those moments. It's, it's a, a little bit like magic somehow. Now we get more receptive, something softens, and of course it might still hurt, might still be painful. Perhaps it's a little bit like in homeopathy, before it gets better, it gets worse. Ajahn Chah, the great uh, monk from the Thai forest tradition, he said, there is suffering that leads to more suffering and there is suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And I think it's very much has to do with, with exactly that moments. Sometimes 
we learn to stay with our suffering, not to be very masochistic or increase our suffering, but because we know this is really the path to the end of it. And through this willingness to stay connected to experience loneliness or hatred or the wanting mind fully, really being in contact with its energy without any interpretation. With what also happens, we experience the loneliness or the hatred of all beings somehow. There is something very universal in this moment. And it's in these moments that we get a sense of connection instead of isolation, what we very habitually also uh, often experience when it's difficult. So there is almost a gift that we receive through that willingness, a kind of a sweetness, although it might be painful or difficult to be there. And sometimes we don't even recognize in that very moment that we actually learn through our willingness to stay present because everything we, we can perceive or we are aware of is that it's painful, that it's unpleasant. And for that there's quite a, a... I found an interesting story again that Pema Chodron mentioned in her talk. One of her long-time students uh, went to play billiards in Los Angeles, which what he did many times before. And he told her that he put his leather jacket over a chair and when he looked up, a minute later, his jacket was gone. And looking around, he saw three big, very strong guys maliciously long, laughing at him and insulting him. And he said that normally in that situation, he would have lost his temper, really. But in that moment, very spontaneously and to his total surprise, he recalled all the human beings in the world who were put down as he was in this very moment and laughed at, and he could empathize with them. And instead of anger, there was compassion. Some time ago, I experienced quite a challenging time myself, just to use a, a personal experience. My body was hurting for unknown reasons, which it actually still does. And in the same period, I got quite ill with another extremely, extremely painful illness. And my mother, who suffered from... Alzheimer's got worse and worse and on top of that my father living alone also got quite ill and since I have no sisters and brothers it was all up to me to 
help and to make decisions that needed to be made at that time. So I experienced quite long periods of despair and absence of joy. This just kind of creeped in, really something I rather unknown to me before in my life. But what also happened within those seemingly endless desert-like times, I, I found really very precious gems. Again and again, totally unexpected, really like the man in L.A. with his le leather jacket. There were these sparks of compassion like rubins and diamonds. I remember very well, it really came up to me. They really seemed like rubins and diamonds. And I became aware that being exposed to all this suffering, that of my parents, my own suffering, in a way irresistibly grinded away conceit and arrogance in those times. That we can have, you know, in those moments where everything seems to go well and according to our wishes and preferences. So I'd like to read a story which, I don't know whether it actually fits so well here, but I'd just like to read it anyway. <laughs> I think it has something to do with this uh, arrogance, actually, and conceit. Also what Fred talked about last night, about mana. And it's called The Rescue of the Moon. In a few days there will actually be full moon, so it also fits that. In the middle of the night, Mullah Nasruddin got thirsty and went to the fountain to draw some water. While bending over the edge of the fountain in order to let down the bucket, he saw deep down and to his surprise the reflected image of the moon. Being terrified, he shouted, the moon fell into the fountain. I need to rescue it. He looked around and saw a rope with a hook at one end. He threw it into the fountain and yelled down, Reach for the hook, moon, and hold on, I'll pull you out. But the rope got hooked on a stone in the fountain. Mullah pulled with all his might, but nothing happened. Suddenly, the hook slipped over the stone and Nasruddin fell on his back. While laying there on the floor, he saw the moon way up in the sky. He sighed relieved and said, that was indeed not an easy task, but it feels great to know that I rescued the moon. <laughs> so that much about conceit. So, at times of success, as I mentioned, when everything goes well, this might creep in as if all this were 
due to our own efforts alone, all this success and things going well and positive. But in these precious moments of great openness, of softness, of vulnerability, in those precious moments in which all prejudice, complaint has fallen off for a moment, there's really nothing left but our own humanness and with it the wish to help alleviate suffering wherever it exists. And I'd like to end again with a story, this time a story by Meister Eckehart, another mystic from the Christian tradition. And it's called Love Does That. All day long, a little donkey, kleiner Esel, a little donkey labors, sometimes with heavy loads on his back and sometimes with just worries about things that bother only donkeys. And worries, as we know, can be more exhausting than physical labor. Once in a while, a kind monk comes to his stable and brings a pear. But more, but more than that, he looks into the donkey's eyes and touches his ears. And for a few seconds, the donkey is free and even seems to laugh. Because love does that. Love frees. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.